standing here because Jesus made a way in our life. It's not just because of you. It's not just because of your resources or your lack of resources. It's because of your God that you serve. Amen. Hope you all are doing well this morning. If you have your Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Rachel Watson is a theological student, a writer, a a high school English teacher. And, And this week she was a guest contributor on a Christian blog site. And she wrote in her piece these words. She says, she writes, when, when I was 18 and, and in the hospital with a serious bone infection, the doctor told me the pain you experience is on par with the pain of giving birth. She goes on and says, I remember feeling you know, kind of proud of that, brave. She continues, I, I felt that the similar rush of, of bravery this week, this past year, having survived the, the trauma of heartbreak. But in the past few months, that bravery has thawed and and melted away. I see the potential of pain everywhere. Of all the idols that have sprung up in my life since my divorce, one of the hardest to exterminate is the idol of no pain. I'm going to let that last statement, you know, sit before you for a few moments because it's fire. It's hot sauce to the tongue. And when you taste it, it does burn. One of the hardest idols to exterminate is the idol of no pain. The idol of no suffering. The idol of no hurt. The idol of no hardship. The idol of no disappointment. The idol of not ever being uncomfortable, the idol of not ever having to sacrifice. No matter how much we bow down to such idols, they don't ever give you what you truly want. We can't escape and isolate ourselves from the harsh realities of living in this world. And there are some harsh realities. All people experience pain. Hurt, disappointment, loss, suffering, evil, and helplessness. Have you been helpless this week? Have you felt helpless this week? Have you witnessed the the helplessness of others this week? If so, then, then I want you to believe that Jesus is with you. He's Emmanuel. In the life of all people who accept and surrender to him as as Lord and Savior in faith. And as I've been saying throughout this whole series, series, his presence is an eternal, unbroken continuum that moves sovereignly throughout every area of your life. There's nothing that you go through that Jesus is not involved with. You're never alone. Even in your helplessness, Jesus is with you. But do you believe it? We're going to see an example of this truth on display this morning in Luke chapter 8. 
beginning in verse 22. Here's God's word. One day Jesus got into the boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they were marveled and said to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? This is God's word. Now please pray with him for me. Father, your word is powerful not because of the people who preach it. It's powerful because it's your word. That's the the good news. You make your word powerful the work of your spirit in our life. The preacher does not. We can't even do it in our own hearts apart from the Holy Spirit. And so as I stand here today, I'm tired, I'm weary, and so I pray that your spirit remove and, and give a word to my heart and a word to your people that you will speak truth into their life that will make a difference in their life, that will impact their week that's coming up. That you will give them a word to help them, help them to see and to believe that you are with them, even in their helplessness. You're there with them. You're not silent. You're not absent. They're not alone. You're always at work. You're always with us. As the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will move in a mighty, mighty way. It's all for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Jesus is Emmanuel to his disciples in their helplessness. And they experienced this helplessness while sailing with Jesus on a boat in a sea to Galilee. While sailing the boat in a sea to Galilee. In, a sea to, in the Sea of Galilee. So the disciples entered this boat. One evening, after Jesus has been teaching and preaching all day long, he tells them to get in the boat. It's his initiative. He, he, he tells them to navigate the boat to the other side of the lake. Look at verse 22. One day, he got in the boat with the disciples and says to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And they set out on, on this journey at Jesus' command. And, and he sets the destination. And they're sailing to the other side of the lake because Jesus wants to do ministry there. That's where he's going. He's going to do ministry. He's going to minister to people on the other side of the lake. And so if they sail going opposite of Galilee, Jesus falls asleep in the back of the boat. Now, I know you're asking yourself, Jesus sleeps? Yes, he sleeps. Forget, he's God and man. He's fully human. He gets hungry. He gets tired. He needs rest. I mean, he has been teaching all day long, preaching all day long. So the brother is tired. And so while he's sleeping, the disciples are left to navigate the boat to the other side of the lake. And everything is awesome, right? Jesus taking a nap. 
The disciples are chilling, just laying back, shooting the breeze, peacefully waiting until they arrive to the other side of the lake. Everybody's on cruise control. Life is good. Life is well. Jesus just finished preaching. He saved a lot of people. We're good. Things are great. Then something happens. Something interrupts the peaceful evening sail upon the sea. What happened, Pastor? Well, a storm happened. That's what happened. The wind picks up. The, The waves grew bigger. A storm develops on the lake. That's what Luke tells us in verse 23b. And the windstorm comes down on the lake, and they were filling with water and are in danger. See, the disciples are in a helpless situation, or a situation, as some people would say. And it doesn't look good. They're caught in a powerful storm. Water, it swamps their boat. They're filling up with water. And guess what? They could capsize. They can sink and most likely drown. They are in real danger. This is not make-believe. And again, some of the disciples are experienced fishermen. They know their way around the boat. They know their way around the water. But this storm is different. What would be your state of mind and emotional state if you are caught in a hurricane at sea? What's going to be your state of mind? Are you going to recite catechisms? Are you going to read Bible verses? Honestly, don't be holy now. Honestly. If you're stuck in a hurricane at sea with your life in jeopardy, what's going through your mind? What's your emotional state? You are afraid. You are in despair. You feel helpless. You panic. You could be like Red Fox on the, on the Sanford and Son. This is the big one. You hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you. That's how you're going to feel. The disciples are human beings. They're people, just like we're people. And they are experiencing the same emotions, the same state of mind you would be. They are in real danger while Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. Think about that. The disciples are facing a life-threatening situation, a helpless situation, while Jesus is on the boat with them. What does that mean? What does that communicate to us about Jesus as Emmanuel in our life? It communicates this. His presence is not a shield that prevents you from storms. He is not a storm shelter. Know that. There's an old African proverb that says, you're either leaving leaving a storm, heading into a storm, or in the midst of a storm. You're either leaving a storm, Headed into a storm or in the midst of a storm. You can't avoid them. You can't dodge them. You can try to dodge them, but they're going to get you. Storms are in the weather forecast of all of our lives. They're already in the weather forecast. If Jesus was a weather man, he's telling you, he's right. Storms are coming. Storms are coming. Look around you. What do you see? People experience and are experiencing all kinds of storms. Even you have experienced storms. People get sick. People have cancer. People have AIDS. People have all these diseases. People have broken relationships and broken families. There are storms everywhere. 
Storms, there's a storm of abortion, there's a storm of death, there's a storm of injustice, a storm of abuse, storms of discrimination. It's all around us. Do we see? Do we see? What do you see? This week, I read about the assassination of an Afro-Colombian civil rights activist. Sad. She was killed for doing something good. Fighting for rights of her citizens, and she was killed for it. Storms. Storms blow through people's lives all the time, and they're real. They're like hurricanes. Category one, two, three, four, five. And when they blow, some of them are dangerous, some of them are life-threatening. When a hurricane is blowing through your life, when it's blowing through your life wrecking havoc, you will think and feel Jesus isn't with you. Now, you can say, it's easy to say you won't when you ain't in the storm. I've said this before. It's always easy to say what you won't do when you ain't in it. When you're in it, when you need deep in it, oh, there's going to be some things that cross your mind. I'll tell you, I ain't as holy as you may think I am. So, I'll just go ahead and put that on the table. Because when you're in the thick of it, you think things. You feel a certain way. You may even think he's with you, but he's with you, but he's asleep. Or he's silent. Yeah, I know he's with me, but he's not doing anything. As you face these dangerous storms alone, you may even say to yourself, Jesus doesn't care about my helplessness. If he cares, then where is he? If he cares, then why am I going through storms anyway? I'm a Christian. Why why should I go through storms? If he cares, then, then he should prevent storms from entering my life. If he cares, then why is all this evil exist in the world? Have you ever been this low? Have you known anyone who's been this low? Have you ever said these things? Some of you have, and some are saying it now. And the disciples can relate. They're in the same place. You see, they go to Jesus while they're in the storm. They, they approach Jesus while in the midst of the storm. But they accuse him of not caring for them while in the midst of the storm. Of not being concerned about their life in the midst of the storm. They're loud about it. There's panic. There's fear in their voices. Verse 24 says, they go and, and wait Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And in Mark 4, 38, it says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are drowning? As I was writing this sermon last night, I mean late, late last night, I asked myself, what are they expecting Jesus to do with the storm once he wakes up? You see, we read this knowing the end in mind. That's how we read the story. They don't have that luxury. They don't have the end in mind. So they don't know what's going to happen. This is a real life experience for them. And so they wake Jesus up fully expecting to die. Don't miss that. The disciples don't say, Master, Master, we might perish. 
Master, master, there, there's a possibility that we might perish. No, it's master, master, we are perishing. We are dying. We are sinking. We are going to drown. So these brothers don't just accuse Jesus of not caring about him. They also assume he doesn't have the power to deal with the storm. He doesn't have the power to deal with the storm. They come and awake him, believing he's not able. They awake him, believing the storm is too big, too strong, too powerful for Jesus to handle. They wake him up, believing he can't make a way out of no way. Here's the thing. They wake him up to perish with them. Because Jesus is included in the week. We are perishing, which includes Jesus. They wake him up to die with them. That's what's happening. Jesus, who has to be awakened out of his sleep, doesn't have the power to deal with this storm. Now, have you ever been awakened out of your sleep with people yelling your name loudly? Parents can relate to that. Because if you, when you're waking out of your sleep quickly, I mean, you're disoriented. And you're furious. You wake up swinging like, what? What? Is anyone dying? So it takes you a moment to gather your thoughts. It takes you a moment to, to see things clearly. See, Jesus is awakened by 12 screaming disciples. All saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. But he wakes up fully oriented. He's not startled. He's not taken off guard. He wakes up with his thoughts already gathered. He wakes up already seeing things clearly. Because Jesus is more than just a man. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us in the flesh. He's fully aware of why they are yelling his name. He's fully aware of why they woke him up. He's aware of the storm. He's aware of their helplessness. The same is true for the church. The same is true for us. The same is true for, for the, this country and this world. Let me put it this way. Jesus is woke, people. And woke is a popular term right now for, for people who are socially aware. But no one is more woke than Jesus. He's woke to the brokenness of the world. He's woke to the injustice. He's woke to the sufferings. Why do you think he came? He comes to this earth woke to the plight of humanity. That's why he came. He's woke to your helplessness. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? He cares about your helplessness. And he has the power to deal with it. It's both and. Just like he does for these disciples in the midst of their storm, this powerful windstorm, in the midst of their helplessness. Jesus calms the storm. And guess what? He calms the storm by dealing with the elements that actually cause the storm to develop. Guess what? The storm didn't just appear out of nowhere. It's not puff, puff, the magic storm that lives in the sea. There are factors and elements that cause the storm to develop in the first place. 
And when he wakes up, that's what he deals with. What does the text say? He wakes up and he rebukes the wind. And he says to the sea, peace, be still. And so the storm ceases and there is a calm. That's power. He is able. And after he calms the storm, this is when he talks with the disciples about their faith. He doesn't doesn't ask them, where's your faith before the storm is calm? He dealt with that first. And after that, he goes to them and say, where's your faith? What what, what does that mean? It means trust me in the midst of storm. Believe that I'm able. Believe that I care. Have faith that I can make a way out of no way. And the disciples They are blown away. They're like, oh, snap. (laughs) Oh, snap. Did you just see see what this brother did? I mean, I was scared before, but I'm shaking in my boots now. (laughs) He commands the wind and the water, and they obey him. Who is this man? He's Emmanuel. He's God in the flesh, who is able to do far more exceedingly and abundantly than you can think or imagine. Our problem is we think too little of our God and our King. We are practical atheists at the end of the day. And we place our trust in other idols and other things. So what does this mean for us? How does Jesus calm the storms in in our life? Would it look like what takes place here in Luke 8? And also, how long would it take for him to calm these storms? Storms develop in our lives, in our communities, in the world. They just don't magically appear. They develop. There are elements, there are factors, there are decisions, there are choices, there are structures, there are systems, there are laws created that that create storms. And Jesus begins to calm these storms by dealing with those things. Please understand, the calming of these storms won't happen overnight. It would take time. It would take weeks, months, and years. And, 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 and so how do you know that? I know that from my, looking at the history of my own ancestors. That's how I know that. Who fought for different things and things didn't happen quickly. But over time, God moved. He changed things. He is able. Now, in some cases, certain storms might not get calm until Jesus comes back. That's a hard reality to itself, but it's true. There's something else we must keep in mind about storms. Because once storms cease, once storms are calm, there is an aftermath. Storms don't come through and don't leave damage. Storms don't come through and don't lead destruction. Many of you lived here when that tornado came through South Huntsville. It messed it up. And when a hurricane comes through your life, it will leave damage. It may lead destruction. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus cares about the aftermath too. Not just the storm itself. He cares about what it does to you. How it impacts you. How it impacts your family. How it impacts society. How it impacts everything. He cares about the aftermath too. Now I wish, I wish I can sit here and tell you that 
Yep, Jesus will literally descend from heaven and calm all the storms in your life. But that's not going to happen on this side of heaven. You see, he all, he's often Emmanuel in our helplessness and sufferings through other means, through other people, ministries, programs, even the government at times, and most importantly, his church, which is you. And so for us, that is, because Jesus is Emmanuel to us, we get to be Emmanuel to others in their suffering. Because he told disciples, you are to love each other as I have loved you. By him calming this storm, he's loving them. And so as they move out, and as he ascending to heaven, they are supposed to love each other this way. Enter into the storms of other people. Are we willing to do that? We do it because God has done that for us. He has done that for us through Christ. So you don't lose hope while in the midst of the storms. Believe that Jesus cares for you. Expect him to move on your behalf. One theologian says, the whole difference between construction and creation is exactly this. A thing constructed can only be loved after it is, after it is constructed. But a thing created is loved before it exists. That is you, child of God, created in his image. He loved you before you even existed. We are created in his image. And this love is expressed by him sending Jesus to this world as payment for our sin. It is expressed in Jesus' death and, and his resurrection. It is expressed in the coming of the Holy Spirit. It continues to be expressed when Jesus being Emmanuel in our life. He's with us in our helplessness. Jesus doesn't ascend into the heavens and then watch us struggle through life alone. He isn't distant. He's no stranger. He's the ever-present one. He knows sometimes we will feel like a motherless child. He understands the troubles we've seen. The storms we face aren't too big and too strong for Jesus to handle. He's able. He does make a way out of no way. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't he deliver Daniel? Yes. Jesus is the sweet chariot swinging low. He leads us all the way. He's the bomb in Gilead. He's an on-time God. He might not come when you want him, but he come right on time. Right on time. But do we believe that? (coughs) Paul says in Romans 8, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. Who has risen? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, or danger, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's you, Christian. No, 
And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But do you believe it? That's the question. Your only comfort in life and death is the fact that you belong to Christ, not in the country that we live in. And not who sits in the over office. It is in Jesus. But do you believe that? This table is a good reminder of God's love. Again, for enemies. I always say this because it's something that we have to remind ourselves of. Because as Americans, we sometimes think people should love us. Because that's just part of who we are as Americans. But we were God's enemies. I want you to think about that. Christ died for enemies. He didn't die for friends. He didn't die for his homeboys. He didn't die for his, 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 his BFFs. He died for people who said crucify him. Because if we were living back then, we would have said the same thing. Crucify him! That's who he died for. Sinners. And this meal is a reminder of, of the, how far God went in order to make us friends, in order to reconcile us to himself. It calls the life of his own son. If God is able to deal with what happened in Genesis 3, he's able to deal with what is transpiring in your life and what is transpiring in the world. But we have to believe that. Hold firm to that. I'll ask the officers to come forward who's going to be assisting. I'll ask them to come forward now. Friends and neighbors, if you don't profess faith in Christ, I do consider the honor that you're here. And if you have questions or, or what it means or to have faith in him, then please see me after the service and I will talk with you. Adults, we do ask the kids we be abstained from the elements until they have been invited to the table by the church that you attend. And then all the kiddos, this is my favorite part of communion, can have all the attention of all the kids. This meal, this meal, is more, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual significance to this meal. It's not just juice and bread. It's a reminder to each of you that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that it really happened. And as your pastor, it's my prayer, along with your parents, along with your guardians, it's our prayer that one day you will profess faith in Christ. And when you do, you get to partake of this meal with us. So it's our prayer that one day you will make a profession of faith in him and you will partake of the table with the rest of God's people in this place. And before we do the elements, I ask you to spend a few moments asking the Holy Spirit to prepare your hearts for the Lord's table. My sin. Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me, 
Against you only have I sinned and done what was done what is evil in your sight. Please don't forget we do have a congregational meeting after the service. Uh, we're gathering in a, few, in a few minutes after I give the benediction to discuss the church budget. And if you are a guest today, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to meet you out in the foyer over by the desk after the service for a meet and greet. And here's God's benediction to his beloved people. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all can think or ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please greet one another.